Hello, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Uh, if you head to the back, um, your teacher will meet you there, and, and uh, they go off and understand scriptures in a, in a more age-appropriate setting. Um, while they're going, I just wanted to encourage you, as we're reading through the Bible together this year, as we're spending time in it, I just wanted to share just a little experience I had, and I hope, and I'm praying that y'all have this similar kind of experience as you're reading. Um, I was reading through the beginning of Colossians, and at the beginning of Colossians, Paul says some truly outrageous things. He says that Jesus, everything was created through him and for him, that he was the one who did all of this, that he is got in him the fullness residing within him. And I've always read that and, and you know, thought of that as, you know, this is some really great Christology. We understand Jesus really clearly from this. But for a moment, I was transported back to the first century and thought about when Paul wrote that, who was he writing to? A scattering of little churches. The, the church had barely even begun. And he's writing to them with the audacity to say, this guy from Galilee, this itinerant preacher who was executed by Romans on a cross, he's risen again. He is the God who created all. And it just struck me as the audacity of Christianity to say something like that. And Paul didn't blush. He didn't draw back at all. He was convicted. This is the truth, and this is the truth that we have to proclaim. And the, the world was, was majority pagan. They were arrayed against Jesus. The idea that there was one God was foreign to them. And here Paul is saying these huge things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I just hope that, that you get to have that experience this week sometime when you're reading where you'll hit something and go, I had never thought of that before. So I just want to encourage you, before you start your Bible study in the morning, just pray, Lord, show me something great from your word. And, and he delights to do that. He delights to show you more of himself. And so he'll meet you there. He'll meet you in his word. Um, before we look at the scriptures, let's open in, in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we just just sang, um, you can have this whole world, but give me Jesus. And Lord, that really is the cry of our heart. Um, we don't lose anything by casting it all aside and accepting Christ. We gain infinitely more. And so, Lord, I pray that, uh, that that would be the cry of our hearts, that that would be the reality that we face, is we lose nothing by turning aside everything and taking on Christ. What great news that is. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we look in your word, that you would show us how much we gain in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for our friend church, Taft Avenue uh, Community Church in Orange this morning. I pray for Pastor Burris as he's preaching, that uh, he would be doing the same thing, opening your word in a way that points everybody to the glory of who Jesus Christ is. And Lord, as we're reading through the Bible in a year, they're, they're doing it in a much more organized fashion. So I pray, Lord, that as they do it together, that you would be doing the same thing for them, that you would show them something miraculous, something glorious, something of yourself on every page of the scripture. And Lord, I, I pray for the congregation that they would, through this newly impassioned heart, this new inflamed love for Jesus Christ would be bold to invite many people to their, their Easter service and that Pastor Bob would handle the word well as he preaches to them. Lord, I, I, that's what we want to. We want to have more of you, to know more of you, to have an, an enlarged heart to trust and, and to love you so that we could share that love with the world. 
Be with us now as we open your word. Help us to understand and see. Lord, may my words carry your meaning, and where they don't, would you let them just fall flat? We want what you have to say to us this morning. So teach us from your word, we pray. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, just want to remind everybody, my understanding of the Gospel of Luke is he's writing this to make us better disciples. At the beginning, he addressed a man named Theophilus, and he says, I want you to be sure of the things you have been taught. Well, disciples are learners. Disciples go to the master and say, teach me. And so what Luke is writing to us is he's saying, I want you to be sure of the things that you're taught. So I want you to be better disciples, better learners, better followers of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the, the theme, the push of the Gospel of Luke. We've just come out of about three chapters worth of Jesus' really intense teaching, some of the greatest parables in the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son, um, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, just great rich parables. And I don't know about y'all, but as I'm going through that, and I keep hearing Jesus say, people are more important than stuff. And, and just really pushing that point, especially with last week with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is in hell, suffering. And I thought, well, what if I don't do this well? <laughs> what if every once in a while stuff kind of creeps up in my heart? Uh, so we're, I think Luke anticipates that. And so the next thing that he's teaching us is he's going to teach us about sin. Um, as I was reading through commentaries this week, looking at this section, uh, one of the commentaries kind of cracked me up because he said, you know, this, these uh, things that he just said, they don't really seem to fit together according to a theme. And so maybe they're like parables, you know, parables, or not parables, I'm sorry, proverbs, you know, where proverbs are just these sayings that kind of stack up, and, and maybe that's what's going on. And then he proceeded to unpack them according to a theme. <laughs> so it, I don't know if you were paying attention when Ron read and you thought, what on earth is Jesus talking about here? He, he seems to jump from topic to topic. And, uh, and how does this all fit together? And where is he going with this? Well, actually, he does have a theme. He has a purpose in telling us this. And what Luke is going to teach us is about sin. He's going to show us what it means to be a disciple and our relationship to sin. So that's where he goes with this. Um, some of the things that Jesus says in here sound very much like things he says in other contexts, in other ways, in Mark and, Luke, or Mark and Matthew. And so some people say, well, you know, he took them and he, he re, redid them or he reworked them or there was some source that they were all, it, it gets really confusing. You know what? Preachers repeat themselves a lot, don't they? You hear somebody preach long enough and you go, yeah, I remember that story. I'm probably going to repeat myself today. I'm probably going to repeat some illustration I've used before in a different context, in a different way. So maybe Jesus used these same kind of stories about a millstone being tied around somebody's neck and thrown into the sea, maybe that was a common way that he anticipated something, that he showed them something important. So when you hear some of these things, if your mind races back to Mark or Matthew and tries to put it in that context, don't, you don't have to go there. This can stand on its own. So he's, gonna, he's just going to tell us these things, and it's possible that Jesus would have used that same illustration more than once. I really hope so because I'm pretty sure I repeat myself. So if, if Jesus is doing it, I think it's going to be okay. So what we're going to look at this morning is it, it's, it sounds like four different things, but I kind of group them into three. Uh, the first part is the inevitability of sin. Sin happens. It's just inevitable. The inevitability of sin. And then we're going to look at the response to sin. What, what are we supposed to do about that? And then finally, we're going to look at the reward of a sin-stained service. 
And, and that's where that last part goes. So here's how it, I think it, it's going. So here's uh, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says to his disciples, that's how it begins. Previously, in the, in the previous couple of chapters, he'd been talking to a mixed crowd. He'd been talking to the Pharisees and his disciples. And now it's like Jesus turns solely to his disciples. He turns to us and he says, Temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So the, now if you've got a different translation than ESV, you may be looking at it translated a little differently. Um, it's kind of an interesting section because the word sin, harmatia, is not in there. But the word for temptation is, you'll love this, scandalon, is where we get the word scandal from. And in other places, it's used to talk about uh, um, a tripping up of somebody. But really, where that word comes from, the, the root of that word scandalon has to do with hunting, if you can believe that. So when, when, when he uses this word uh, scandal or, or temptation, he's talking about a hunter putting a bait out and luring something in. He's talking about a trap that's supposed to catch. That's where you get that idea of stumbling, is they get their foot stuck in a, a trap and they fall. So Jesus is saying, this temptation, this lure, is sure to come. For, for believers, there is going to be temptation to sin. There's going to be this lure, this bait put out before you that's calling you to sin. It, it just is, this is the way it is at this point in time. So he says it's impossible for that sin not to come, for that temptation not to come. It's, it, in the Greek, it's more negative than it appears here. He literally says, it's impossible that it not come. So really a bunch of negatives piled up. So do you get the idea that Jesus is saying, look, you're going to be tempted. It's going to happen. You're going to be tempted to sin. And as a matter of fact, he says, not only are you going to be tempted, but sometimes you're going to fail. Because at the end, he says, um, he, he talks about these little ones causing the little ones to sin. So not only will the temptation be sure to come, but you're going to fall for it. There will be times where you put your foot in the trap. It's going to happen. That's what I meant by the inevitability of sin. So as we come off of this parable of cycle, uh, parable of, <laughs> cycle of parables, not parable of cycles. Um, Jesus didn't talk any about any bicycles. As we come off this cycle of parables, and we've been really encouraged to be faithful and be called to be faithful, and we've been put, what's been put before us has been the dire consequences of failure. The rich man is in hell, literally in hell. Now Jesus turns to us and he says, now look, you have to have a Christian understanding of sin. You have to understand sin from a Christian perspective. You have to understand that it is inevitable. In this life, it is going to come. Temptations are unavoidable. And occasionally, the little ones will fall. But he's not saying, well, it's okay to sin. He's not giving us an out and saying, well, I know, you, I know, you know people are people and you just made a mistake and it's okay and we're still pals. That, that's not where he goes with it, because right in the middle, he talks about who's the one setting the bait? Who's the one set the trap? Who has enticed you? It would be better for that one if you could just tie the millstone around his neck and throw him into the sea, if that was the end of it for them. That would be better than for to allow them to keep tempting you into sin. So that's the idea. Sin is not something to be winked at or nodded at or isn't that cute. Though the reality is it's coming, 
the, the weight that, of it is it would be better if the tempter perished immediately. So one of the things that, that struck me about this is Jesus is a realist when it comes to sin. He is not deceiving himself into thinking, well, I'll save them and then they'll all get better and won't sin anymore. He's looking at his disciples and he says, I understand you. I understand what you're made of. I understand what it's going to be like for you. And I want you to be aware of this before you get there, what's going to happen. This is why in the Last Supper, he looks to his disciples and he goes, you're going to all desert me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. One of you is going to betray me. Is he's not trying to pretty it up and make, make it look like people are really nice. Jesus is the ultimate realist in this sense. Other religions will demand from you perfection. It will demand from you obedience. Jesus says, look, I, I'm, the Father demands obedience. He, he demands perfection. But I come as the Savior, and I look at you, and I know what it's going to be like. That's why you need a Savior. So that's that section here about this inevitability of sin. God will not tolerate imperfection. But he sends a Savior who comes to deal with it. So Jesus, in this sense, is really the ultimate realist. He is not surprised by our failure. Now, remember, we've just been dealing with the Pharisees. We've been dealing with very religious people, people who have convinced themselves that they've got it nailed. We don't sin anymore. We've got sin in a box. We've got it all put away. And so the problem with, with that kind of approach to religion, where you think you've got it nailed down, is it keeps you from Jesus. In Flannery, Flannery O'Connor, she was a... Um, a popular author in the 1950s in the South. And uh, she wrote quite a bit of um, religious themes in her writing. She was a devout Catholic and, and really dealt with a lot of religious themes in very interesting ways. Some of them are kind of bizarre. But there's one story she tells about a man named Hazel Motes. And Hazel Motes goes from a little town to the big town. And the big town, I would imagine, has you know two grocery stores or something in it. It's still kind of small. But Hazel is traveling, and as he goes, he runs into different things. He meets some religious people who are preaching to him, and he doesn't want anything to do with them. And then he, he comes across some prostitutes, and he doesn't want anything to do with them. And the way Flannery O'Connor explained it, she said that Hazel Motes had a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. So he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so he knew to stay away from Jesus, all he had to do was stay away from sin. So he avoided not only the church, but also the brothel as well. And, and this was his approach. Jesus is standing there going, no, don't avoid me by avoiding sin. Understand you're going to sin and then come to me, is what he's saying. That's, that's how he's calling us. And that sin is horrible. It's so bad that it would be better for the tempter, whoever that is. Maybe that's Satan. Maybe it's somebody you know who is not just making a mistake in front of you and causing you to sin, but actually actively engaged in leading you into something you know to be sin. That's the picture here. It would be better for this person if the upper millstone, in a mill, the upper millstone is the heavy one so that it'll grind the, the wheat as it spins. It would be better if that upper millstone was taken and put around that person's neck and they were thrown into the depths of the sea and that was the end of it. Now we know from last week that's not the end of it. But it would have been better for that person who would intentionally lead you into sin if that was to happen to them. That is the nature of our walk as Christians, is we are painfully aware of our sin. 
We hate it. We're ashamed of it. We're distressed by it. And yet at the same time, we have a Savior who comes and delivers us from it. So what do we do then, understanding that we are individually sinners when we're in community? As a church, guess what we are? A bunch of sinners in close proximity to each other. Do you know what that means? We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to say stuff that is offensive. We're going to say things that, boy, you shouldn't have said that. We're going to, we are going to sin collectively. That's what it means to be a sinner saved by grace, is we gather together with other sinners saved by grace, and we sin, and we struggle against it, and we wish we hadn't. And so Jesus then takes us to the next step. He says to, in verses 3 through 6, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. How are we sinners saved by grace supposed to relate to each other? The way that our father relates to us. You don't, number one, sugarcoat over somebody's sin and go, oh, well, it's not really sin. They, bless their heart. They didn't mean that. You look at them and you go, brother, that's a sin and you got to knock that off. And then as a sinner saved by grace, when we hear that, we go, you're right. I'm sorry. I repent. Please forgive me. Repent does not mean I am embarrassed that I got caught. That's not repenting. Repenting is not saying I'm sorry and thinking how fast can I get back to it. The word for repent has to do with a change of direction. In, in Greek philosophy, it was when you were convinced that this was your position and now you've changed your mind to this. It, it was the idea of moving from position A to position B. In Christian theology, they took the same term and they said that's not enough. It's not enough to change your mind. The way repent is used is convert, change your direction, change the course of your life. So this brother comes to you and he's sinned and you say you're wrong, you've got to stop it, and he repents. What is Jesus talking about then? Forgive him seven times. I mean, Matthew 18, right, is talking about church discipline. You, your brother sins against you. You go to him and you talk to him and you say, hey, knock it off. And he doesn't listen to you. So you go take two more people and you go talk to him and say, hey, knock it off. And he still doesn't listen to you. And then Jesus says, well, you take it before the entire church. And if he still doesn't listen, then you kick him out. So what about this with forgive him seven times? How does that fit in? Well, the key word there is repent. In the church discipline, it doesn't say if he repents. It says if he won't listen to you, not if he won't repent. So the, the, the idea here is we have to put up with each other when we're being quirky, when we're being annoying, when we're being sinful. And it's loving and appropriate for us to come to each other and say, what you've done is sinful. I want you to understand this is what the scriptures have to say. It's not my opinion. I'm not being perfect and coming to you and saying, come be like me. What I'm saying is, you've done wrong. And for the Christian, the Christian will look at themselves, assess themselves, and go, yeah, I, I repent. I don't want to do that anymore. And if the next sin comes along and they do the next sin and you go to them again, it could happen seven times in a day. So it is a changing away. It is turning away. This is the reality that Jesus is painting for us. This is what it means to be a sinner saved by grace, is recognizing the next sin and the next sin and the next sin and, and, and working ourselves away from it. 
So did you notice that at the beginning, though, Jesus says, pay attention to yourself? This isn't focused on the brother, is it? This isn't focused on the one who's come and sinned against you. He says, now, now pay attention to yourself in this, because you're going to have a heart that's unforgiving. So be, be aware of that. And guess what that is, an unforgiving heart that's more sin. So it just doesn't get any better here. <laughs> it just keeps getting worse. Well, Paul picks up the same thing in Galatians 6, right at the beginning. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then the very next thing he says is, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The temptations come. The sin comes. We have to deal with it. We have to be forgiving with each other. And so what is the, the disciples' response to this? The disciples' response is, give us a, church, a book of church order so that we'll know exactly when lines are crossed and how to handle them. The re disciples' response is spot on, exactly where it should be. What? Increase our faith. We can't do this. The way that we fight sin in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters is by faith. And the disciples understood that. And so they look to Jesus and they say, you have to increase our faith. We can't possibly do this. Faith in what? What is Christian faith? What faith are they asking for? This is not the sound of music. I have confidence and confidence alone. Besides this, you see, I have confidence in me. That is not the way you fight the sin. As a matter of fact, that's almost guaranteed to set you up for the next one. I have confidence in me. That's not Christian faith. That's not what, what they're asking for. Instead, we're called by faith in Jesus Christ, faith focused on a person to fight sin, to war against sin. In our men's group, our men's fellowship on, on Tuesday nights, uh, we're studying a book called um, Overcoming Sin and Temptation. It's a collection of three writings by a man named John Owen. And the first one is called The Mortification of Sin. Mortification means putting to death. And so John Owen, he was a Puritan. He wrote this in the 1600s. So it's a bit of a thick slice of reading at times. Um, but the way the book is put together, it's really helpful. But what's been so amazing is to read this Puritan, John Owen, and hear the humanity in him as he's approaching this question of sin. So he points us to this scripture that says you must be putting sin to death constantly. He points to Romans 8, 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so, so John Owen looks at this and he said, it is absolutely necessary for Christians to live in a forgiving and an understanding way with each other and to be warring against and putting to death sin in our members constantly. So what does he mean by, doesn't that mean that we stop sinning? We have mortified sin. We have put it to death. Doesn't that mean it's gone now? Well, Owen explains it like this. He says, to mortify sin is not to utterly kill it, root it out, and destroy it, that it should no more have hold or at all, nor residence in our hearts. It's true that that is what is aimed at, 
But that's not accomplished in this life. So wait a minute. We're supposed to put to death sin, but we never do it. It, it still keeps going. So Owen understands this, and, and the way the Puritans wrote was they would write this big section, and they'd go, okay, here's all the objections you're going to raise, and they'd address each objection. That's just the way the Puritans did it. So he anticipates our, our objection to this, and he says, well, if sin, putting sin to death is not immediately killing it, causing a cessation of life, putting a bullet through its head, then what is it? And he says, it's the habitual weakening of sin. It is sin being put to death. In the Greek, it's a present tense. It's happening now, being put to death. And so he gives us hope. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, not, only, not that I've obtained it or I'm already perfect. Paul says, look, I'm not perfect. I understand that. Paul, the guy who wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament, is a sinner saved by grace. Instead, Owen points us to Galatians 5, and he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So as we're warring against sin in ourselves, as we're fighting against that sin that we communally have, the picture is we have crucified that. When a person is crucified, do they die immediately? No, the problem was when Jesus was crucified, it was on the Sabbath before the Passover, and so they said, go kill the guys on the cross because they're going to linger for days and we're not allowed to leave them up there during the Passover. The point of crucifixion was they would line the streets coming into the major cities and they would crucify the criminals there so that days upon days they would hang there slowly dying. So that when you came into the city and you saw that person hanging there, you go, this is what happens to criminals and I don't want that to happen to me. The, the point of crucifixion is it's a slow, painful, torturous death. And so Owen, in his book, when he's talking about it, he says, this is what it means to mortify the flesh, to mortify sin, is it is crucified. When that man is first nailed to that cross, he's screaming, he's kicking, he's fighting with everything he's got. And that's what happens when you engage sin and you say, I'm going I'm to kill sin. I'm going to put to death the deeds, in my the, the deeds of the flesh, is it kicks back hard. It fights for life. But as you continue to war against it through faith in Jesus Christ, it's like that crucified man with his blood and his spirit ebbing out. And he becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. So that's why Jesus tells us at the beginning, sin is inevitable. It is going to come. Temptations will fly in your face. You will give in to them. But the hope of this is it'll wane. It'll, we'll fight against it. We war not by being in isolation. If we isolate ourselves and think we're going to war against uh, sin in our bodies, we're going to fail. We need each other. If your brother sins, go and correct him. If you sin and your brother comes to you and corrects you, receive the correction. Listen, analyze yourself, take a look. That's how we war against the flesh. That's how we war against the sin. That's how we crucify it and watch its life ebb out of it, is together, communally. And so this, the, the, the uh, disciples rightly say, Lord, give us faith, increase our faith. And the good news is Jesus says, look, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, a grain of sand, you would have enough faith to look at a tree and say, be planted in the ocean, and it would get up and walk over to the ocean and plant itself in fir firmly in water. 
So what, what that means is, it's, it's hyperbole, it's speaking in larger terms than necessary to make the point. What he's saying is, you don't need a ton of faith to do this. You don't need this gigantic basket of faith to do this. If you've got this tiny little bit in me, it's possible. This is how you war against sin. This is where you go with it. And so that's, that's our response to sin. That's what we do to, to end sin, to war against it. So then, what do we do at the end? Jesus has this thing about the servant. Where does that fit into the issue of sin? He doesn't even mention sin there. What he's looking at, he's looking at us and he's saying, okay, this is your duty, is to war against sin in your life. It is your duty to war against sin with each other, communally. And so... Well, what's my response then when I have great success over this sin, but I see a brother who's not? Do I get a better reward? I get a better mansion in heaven? I get a seat in the auditorium of the throne room that doesn't have a pillar in front of it or standing behind a big angel with his wings spread out? What do I get out of this, Jesus? And so Jesus tells a parable. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, go fix dinner, dress, bring it to me, watch me eat and drink, and when, after, when I'm done and you clean up the dishes, then you can go eat and, eat and drink. He says, so also, when you have done all that was commanded to you, you'll say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. So as we war against sin, as we're fighting against this communally, together, the temptation is to sin. And to look at other people and go, well, you, you know, I overcame that years ago. I don't know what their problem is. Instead, Jesus paints this picture of, look, you've done your duty. What are you expecting? Jesus is saying, look, the Father in heaven demands perfection. The way he designed humanity, the way he wanted humanity to be was, was sinless. And so if you do your job in war against sin... All you're doing is what he's called you to do. Is he going to stand up and applaud for you? It, it brings in, this parable brings in this element of humility. Is, is We're not going to stand before God and, and parade our, our accomplishments and say, look, I defeated this sin. He's going to go, good, now get to work. That's the picture. But at the same time, there's something else going on here. Do you remember back in, in chapter 12 when Jesus told the parable about being ready, watching for the, the master to return. Do you remember that parable? He said the watchman will be at the gate waiting for the, for the master to return. And if you stay awake, he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once and he come, when he comes and knocks. Then listen to what he says. Blessed are the ones, the servants, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Isn't that just the exact opposite of what he just said? So it, is Luke that bad of a writer? Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know Luke is an expert writer. He is very, very precise in what he's doing. Okay, so how do we fit these two together? In the one hand, he says... The master's not going to serve you when you do what you've been told to do. And the other hand, he says, when the, when the master comes home and finds you doing what you were told to do, he's going to serve you. So which is it? Well, I think the, the key that unlocks this is the beginning of our section. He says, will any one of you, 
How would you treat your servant? Would you treat your servant by saying, hey, you did a great job of doing exactly what I left on the list for you to do? No, you go, okay, good. Now, here's the next thing. That's, that's how it works. When he looks in chapter 12, he says, this is how God is going to deal with that. This is how God's going to respond to you. Is he's going to be so pleased that you're welcoming the master in, speaking of his own return, that he's going to invite you to the table. He's going to have you come, and he's going to serve. So the way these two ideas fit together is he's talking about God's grace. On the one hand, he's, he's humbling us. He's saying, assess yourself correctly, which is you're just an unworthy servant who's been done, done what you've been asked. That, that's all you've done. But at the same time, he says, look at how the Father will treat you, how he will respond to you in Jesus Christ. It's unheard of. It is absolutely unheard of that a master would sit down and serve his servants. And that's the point. It's supposed to be outrageous. And that's why Jesus brings it up here in the other way. And he says, now who in their right mind would do that? And the good news is God. God will do that. God will welcome you into the wedding feast. He will have you recline at the table. He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he'll serve you. And while you're sitting at the table, you'll be looking at him going, I'm an unworthy servant. All I did was what you asked me to do. In other words, when we get to heaven, we're not going to look at him and go, you owe me. You owe me. What we're going to say is, but Lord, I sinned. I did this. I did this. I did this. And God's going to look at us in Jesus Christ and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Sit it down at the table. I'm bringing the food. That, that's tremendous news that Jesus would put us in this position between these two parables. But in the midst of it, you have to be a realist. You can't fool yourself into thinking, well, I have defeated all the sin in my life. I'm over that now. I've outgrown it. You have to assess yourself in light of, I'm an unworthy servant, just like all of you all are unworthy servants. We're struggling to do just the checklist that he left when he took off. We are really working hard to get the few, first few checks done. And then when he returns, what we find is it's not by works, it's all by grace. And he says, come into my feast. Come and sit down. Come and join me and we'll eat together. This is the Christian attitude towards sin. This is the Christian response to sin is be a realist like Jesus is. Don't fool yourself into thinking you got it all licked. Um, that's one of the things Owen said in his book is he said, some people have a pleasant disposition. They're just nice people. And so as they become Christians and they start growing, you go, well, they're just nice people. They really have got that sin licked. And he said, other people have more turbulent, violent natures. They're just more outgoing. And he said, the difference is you could look at this person who's just by nature tame and say they're, they're more sanctified when the truth is that more violent person may have overcome more and more sins in their life to get to the point where they're just barely keeping it under control than the person who's always been pleasant. It's, it's so reassuring to know, Lord, it's by grace I do this. It is not by just working really hard and then not looking at the rest of the congregation and going, I'm not as good as him, but I'm better than him. You all, all of us together are unfaithful servants. We're, we're not diligent. We do, haven't done everything that has been commanded. And yet, by grace, he invites us into his feast. 
So this is the Christian attitude towards sin. This is where Hazel Motes went wrong by saying, I'm going to avoid Jesus by avoiding sin. You're not avoiding sin. Hazel was, was totally deceiving himself. Be a Christian realist when it comes to your own sin. Let's pray together. Lord, if we had the faith of a mustard seed, just a tiny little speck, a period on a page, Lord, we could have this whole Antelope Valley converted. We could share our faith with every single person we meet. We could invite folks to church so that every church in the Antelope Valley was filled to capacity. And Lord, that would be what you've commanded us to do and nothing more. At that point, Lord, you would be right to say, you did what I told you. Lord, give us that faith. But Father, I also pray that you would help us to see sin in reality. To not discount it because we have mild temperaments or placid lives, but Lord, to recognize the sin that, that is in us as what it is and to fly to the throne of grace and say, Lord, forgive me. Jesus, I just am so grateful that you taught this so that you, you show us, you see right through us. We're not deceiving anybody but ourselves when we get to that point. And yet, Lord, you call us little children, the little ones, and you threaten horrible things for those who trick us into sin, who lead us into sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for caring and thank you for pardoning our sins. Lord, may we be crucifying them on a day-to-day -day basis, watching the, the, the power seep out of them so that in the end, we might sit at your table with you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.